Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will discuss President Biden's fiscal year 2020 budget with AAF President Douglas Holtagen. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a few weeks. How have you been? Doing great. Got up to see the grandchildren, third birthday party, baptism, you know, good family stuff. Yeah, it's nice to see those things returning as we hopefully are coming out of this year-long pandemic and getting back to normal. Yes, it's fantastic. So let's jump into today's topic. And of course, that's the president's budget. President Biden attempted to have a quiet release of his fiscal year 2020 <laughs> budget, dropping it on Friday afternoon before the Memorial Day weekend. Um, but it still made a bit of news. Before we get into specifics, let's look at the overall message. The president's budget starts with the phrase, where we choose to invest speaks to what we value as a nation. So let's start there. What does the president's budget tell us about what he thinks the nation most values? Uh, big government and big government programs. Um, this is not a budget that um, heralds the the dawn of a new age of the private sector, a reliance on traditional entrepreneurism and economic freedom, uh, the role of private enterprise. You know, it, it's essentially just focused squarely on government programs as the way to have a stronger middle class. And they're always talking about a stronger middle class, but the, the way they see getting it is, is just through these government programs. Yeah, so let's go through some of those specifics. Uh, President Biden proposed spending for FY 2020 exceeds $6 trillion over the next decade. Spending under his budget would average 24.5% of GDP. I'm not sure if this qualifies as a Gordon Gray fact, but uh, he noted in his insight, there's never been a 10-year period in U.S. history with this level of spending as a share of GDP, even inclusive of World War II. Yeah. Uh, that's huge. I mean, what would the impact yeah. of this spending uh, be? We're almost at one fourth, one out of every four dollars in the economy running through the federal government. That's an that's an enormously intrusive federal government. In the quote good old days of my youth, uh, the the standard rule was the the federal government would spend about twenty percent of GDP, would collect about eighteen percent of GDP in taxes, and and borrow the difference two percent of GDP. That was sort of business as usual in the eighties nineties. Uh, this is a, a world's away from that. If you're, if you're going from 20 to 25, you're, you're up by a full quarter. This is a much bigger government. Yeah. So what is the impact of this spending? I mean, can this level of spending be justified in your view? Well, the the real issue is the expansion of the social safety net. The, the place those numbers are coming from is, is not annual decisions by Congress on defense spending or non-defense spending, uh, you know, basic research, infrastructure, education. That It's we want to have paid family leave. We want to have enhanced childcare subsidies. We want to have bigger healthcare subsidies. We want to have a bigger earned income tax credit, so subsidies for, for low-income work. We want to have a child credit uh, to address child poverty, which is a, a monthly check to people, uh, enormously expensive. Over 10 years, it alone would cost a little under $2 trillion. And so um, th this is a big expansion of the social safety net. If you think about it, that's a uh, an issue where you're taxing people to transfer income. These are all transfer programs. Uh, they alleviate the, the need to save because you're going to have the support of the government. Uh, that Many of them are not contingent on work. So health subsidies don't have to work to get them. Child care or child poverty uh, subsidy don't have to work to get that. So there's there's a, a sort of 
message there that that sort of reliance on government programs is is an okay thing, and um, it's enormously expensive. Yeah, you know, when I'm watching the news or I'm scrolling through Twitter or reading, you know, an online news story, the narrative or the talking point you hear about these huge increases in federal spending is it's necessary investment in the economy. So, I mean, will we see growth from from that spending? I don't think so. But here's the here's the bet. Um, uh, the traditional route to growth is to uh, not consume a dollar. So, you know, if you're me, you don't go to P.F. Chang's and, and uh, order yourself another Kung Pao chicken, uh, you save that dollar, put it away, um, allow some entrepreneur, some company to invest in their equipment or their factory or their workers, make them more productive and get back more than a dollar in the future. And it's that deferring consumption and, and saving and investing that, that produces growth. So one way to, do, to support that is to have a low level of taxation on the return to saving and investment. Uh, a light regulatory burden and and the traditional um, small government private enterprise oriented uh, uh, policy has that mix. They're not worried about that. Um, they're going to raise taxes substantially, three point six trillion dollars. They are focusing it especially on the return to saving investment, so higher corporate taxes, higher capital gains taxes, both during their life and and at death, higher taxes on dividends, uh, a big uh, increase in taxation. Um, again, Gordon Gray fact, the highest level of taxation is a, as a fraction of uh, GDP in the modern history of the United States. So that's that's an extraordinary uh, change in things. Uh, and instead, what they're counting on is that by having childcare, by having paid family leave, uh, paid uh, medical leave, that it will uh, draw into the labor force uh, women, especially. But increased labor force participation, that means there are more workers. You have more workers, you can produce more. And so that that's what they're looking for. I think there are two concerns with that. Um, concern number one is that if you look at the European countries that feature comparable programs on paid leave and, and, and the like, they don't uniformly have better labor participation than labor force participation than the United States. And so it's a risky bet that it'll pay off to begin with. And the second, as I mentioned earlier, is they have other elements of this which aren't contingent on work and which go the other direction, the, the child credits and uh, health subsidies in particular. So there's a mixed set of incentives and no track record for the pro-work incentives paying off and, and higher participation. So that doesn't happen. You're not going to get the, the saving investments kind of growth and you're not going to get the increase the, the size, the labor force growth. Then they got a problem. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask about pay-pours next, but I think you wrote something in the dish about uh, feeding the bureaucratic beast will uh, take a lot of taxes. And so it seems like, as you just outlined, this is going to be a lot of taxes and it's going to impact businesses, the overall economy. And it's supposedly supposed to help workers. Um, You know, Biden wants to help workers, but it doesn't seem like that might be the case. On balance, uh, they will have higher spending on government programs in this vision of the universe. My my bet is that they will have lower productivity growth and thus lower growth in their wages. And, and so their life might not overall be better. And the mix of who they're relying on will be heavily uh, tilted toward the government and less toward their employer and, and their economic self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. On the topic of taxes, we've also been talking about, you know, they're, they're trying to roll back some of the TCJA tax. Is that part of this as well? You know, will we start seeing the one of the big issues come back where people inversions and we're seeing uh, headquarters leave the U.S. again? 
Yeah, I'm, you know, we did research on this. Gordon Gray um, kept track of the, the headquarters of U.S. multinationals that left the country and went somewhere else. There were about 100 of them in the decade leading up to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Since TCGA, zero. Right? We have not lost a headquarters. Uh, I'm afraid if we go back to the 28% corporate rate, we're now badly out of line with the world one more time, and we restart that, that lose the headquarters um, phenomenon. That's not a bad thing for the CEOs. They don't move, but it is a bad thing for the average American worker because those jobs do go away. And and that was the history there. I see no reason to go back to that that policy. It's a, it seems like a mistake to me. Yeah. Um, regrettably, there's more than just tax hikes in this. You noted the president's budget proposes to saddle the future with an additional $14.5 trillion in deficits over the coming decade. It's hard for us non-budget geeks to get our heads around what that means. But what does this level of debt mean to Americans? Um, do we need to worry? So I think the, the things that are worth pointing out here are that, number one, this doesn't add up. They have claimed repeatedly in the rollout of all these various plans, rescue plan, family plan, job plan, that it, we're going to pay for all this, right? We had 10 years of spending, 15 years of taxes, it'll all be fine. Well, if you look at the budget, they're going to borrow an additional trillion and a half dollars over the next 10 years than they otherwise would have. And the underlying problem is big enough that, that we had $13 trillion in, in deficits to begin with. And we're now up to 14.5. Um, that's uh, a reflection of the fact that we are starting with an enormous amount of debt. Right? We have debt large in, as a fraction of GDP larger than 100 um, percent, highest it's ever been. And this budget would drive it north to, to something like 107% of GDP. If you look inside here, here's a, a, a fun fact for budget geeks. Um, there's a, a phenomenon known as the, a concept known as the, the primary deficit. That's the difference between the revenue you have and the spending you do excluding interest. So that's sort of money coming in and activities of the government primary deficit. And then there's the, the interest costs. By the end of the 10-year window, the interest costs are bigger than the primary deficit. It's why we're running deficits. So we are now getting to the point where we're you know, taking out a new credit card to pay the interest on the previous credit card. That's not sustainable. And what this administration has said pretty clearly in their, their message is not our problem. There, there's no acknowledgement of it, no attempt to deal with it. So do you think the spending proposals mark a turning point in Americans' taste for big government spending. Um, and, you know, I don't want to let Republicans off the hook here either, because even the bigger problem, um, the new spending is, of course, old spending, the entitlements, yep. um, that neither side has shown any interest in tackling. What will it take for Congress to finally get its fiscal house in order? I, I don't know the answer to that, Kyle, honestly. I, I do think it's an important moment because this is um, a newly elected president's first budget. It's it's meant to be a marker for, for their vision of what is the true north for fiscal policy, what is the true north for the, the role of government in our, in our economy, in our society. And so, yes, I think it's, it's very important. Um, uh, it is very troubling to me that um, neither side has any particular appetite for, for dealing with our fiscal problems. I think you know, Republicans have done nothing on the entitlement front. They they did uh, increase deficits with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. They don't really have a lot of credibility on fiscal policy at this point. Uh, so th there is no voice out there that says, hey, we got a problem. We need to deal with it. Um, I think it will take uh, a time, uh, perhaps be a, a major event like you know, 
we're, we will at some point in the next couple of weeks, I hope, uh, see a trustees report for the Social Security program and for the Medicare program. Both of those have substantial financial problems. I mean, the, the last time we were able to do the trustees report, Social Security had about a decade before it ran out of uh, trust fund money. Uh, Medicare was at about four years. Uh, given what went on in 2020, it's quite possible both those numbers have come down noticeably. So it might be two years, three years for, for Medicare. That might be a wake-up call. Right? People say, wait a minute, how can we spend all this money on these new things? The old ones are broken. What, how are we going to do all this? And, and something has to trigger the attention of the public and make them interested in understanding the nature of our problems and, and, and the, the kinds of monies that we, we have committed to but don't have the taxes to pay. Mm, what does a fix on this look like? I mean, if if Congress was going to get serious about this today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, what does a fix look like? Well, I, I think Social Security uh, is the easiest because there have been any number of bipartisan commissions that have come up with a plan. And the plan always has some common elements. Uh, the, believe it or not, um, the, the minimum benefit is too small. Right? That's a pretty good case that's been made there. So you want to bump up the minimum benefit, but you then want to more aggressively mean test benefits so that people who are lifetime affluent get less in the way of Social Security and sort of bring things into alignment. Uh, often you can adjust the, the retirement age, but that really doesn't do much. People think that's the solution, but it doesn't move the numbers dramatically. And then over on the tax side, you go back to taxing 90% of taxable wages. We're down under under uh, 80 right now. And that gets you back to the original configuration. So it's a combination of taxes and reduced spending, and that, that brings things into alignment. That, that's doable. It's the healthcare problems, which are the most uh, pressing. They're, they're bigger, they're big numbers, and, um, and they're harder because it involves healthcare, not just moving dollars from one person to another. Gotcha. A few weeks ago on the podcast, uh, you and I, t when we were talking discussing the skinny budget, I think it was called, you talked about uh, what we could learn from the economic projections in the president's budget. So what did we learn? I, I was shocked by these. Uh, I'll be honest. I thought they would say, OK, we've got these programs. We've got the American Rescue Plan. We have all the, these infrastructure investments we're going to make. So in the near term, we get a big boom out of the American Rescue Plan. So 2021, you get something that might be six or even eight percent. There are a lot of private uh, forecasters who have it there. They, they came in a touch over five, relatively modest by those standards. Uh, and then in 2022, you might have uh, carried that on and, and gotten another five, but they, they they marked it right down to a little over three. And then in the out years, it, it sort of pegged at 2% or 1.9% growth um, out, out in the, as far as I can see. So what are, that, that's what we had before uh, the pandemic. Um, what did we get from all those investments that they talk about? I thought we were supposed to get improved economic performance. And if that's what they think they're buying with their investments, that means that the things I'm worried about, the taxes, are going to have a big, bigger negative effect. It might be less than what we're seeing in these, in these numbers. So this is, a, this is not, as I said at the outset, this isn't a budget that sort of trumpets the role of the private sector. The, the private sector is sidelined. It's not going to grow more rapidly, and, and they're just going to count on the government. Mm -hmm. Where does all this go from here? What does Congress do next? What should we expect from the public? Or we as the public should expect. So increasingly, president's budgets have been dead on arrival, and I think this essentially is. Um, the, that's one of the reasons you put it out on the Friday before Memorial Day. Why, why take any heat uh, over the red ink and the taxes and all the things that are in this uh, when it's not going to buy you anything in the way of legislative success? So they've done that arithmetic. 
the administration has already made clear what they want, right? They, with these jobs plans, American family plan, proposed tax increases, the basic structure of all of this was well advertised before the budget came out. And, and Congress is now deciding what they're going to fill into those, those, those um, frameworks. They, they're not gonna take the president's proposals literally, they're gonna work on what they think uh, constitutes infrastructure and, and, and how they think it should be financed and, and we'll see what that turns out to be. So the particulars here, I think, are are interesting, but I don't think they're uh, a forecast for what we'll actually see make it into law. So you think this won't have any impact on the, you know, the infrastructure negotiations that are happening probably right now, all the other plans that the, from the Build Back Better plan? I, I, I don't think so. I think this is, you know, something they, they need to do. Um, there, are, there are parts of this, uh, for example, the parts that describe funding the agencies and, and their requests for discretionary spending, which are important for the management part of the, the Office of Management Budget uh, Portfolio. Uh, the budget part's not all that important, but the management part is. And, and those requests and, and the ability to enforce the use of that money on, on the agencies is, is an important part of every administration. And that's really what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't planning on talking about this today, but we do have a little extra time. I w wanted to know if you had any thoughts about the jobs report that's coming out on Friday. We we saw a disappointing number last month, so hopefully we see something better this month. What are, what are you thinking? One hopes for better. I'm I'm not in the uh, super optimistic uh, camp. The the things we've learned in the interim are things like the Federal Reserve's Beige Book, its survey of, of business activity across the country reporting that employers continue to have trouble finding workers. And so if you can't find workers, you can't create jobs. And that, that's sort of pointing toward a relatively modest number. We got um, something known as the uh, this ISM. It's a company that does surveys of purchasing managers. And uh, the service sector in that report uh, had lower employment growth than, than in April. So we're going the wrong direction from that disappointing April number. Those are, those are pieces of evidence to the downside. We got another report on ADP employment today that was 900,000 um, and ADP's typically been below the official number. So that's to the upside. I, I'm landing essentially modestly uh, pessimistic. So I'm, I'm at about 600,000 jobs. We've averaged 500,000 this year. So that, that's not a, a huge boom in May. That's a, a, a continued pickup. Inside of that, whatever the top line number, I think the keys are to, to look carefully at labor force participation you cannot fill, you know, the 8.1 million job vacancies we have without more workers. And we've got to get people back into the labor force at the rates we had back in early 2020. We're not even close to that. Uh, I'm looking at the part-time work and, and temporary uh, work. In April, one of the sort of things hidden in that report is that we lost 100,000 temp jobs. And we also saw in the household survey, separate survey, a huge drop in the number of people who are working part-time for economic reasons. That feels like a shift toward full-time employment. Like we're just, okay, we're, we're, we're reopened, let's go, get people back on the payroll. That's a good news story, I wanna see that continue. And what we saw in April was recovery in the places we expect recovery. Uh, services in general, leisure and hospitality in particular, you know, restaurants are open again, gotta hire waiters and, and the like. Uh, but we, we saw a decline in goods manufacturing, things like that. I, I'm looking for more broad-based strength something that says we're growing. And so if we get if we got 500,000, 600,000, and we got the right reading on those three things, I, I would consider that a very solid report. 
Excellent. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Doug, thanks for joining us and giving us your insight on the budget. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.